Previously on At The Movies with Arch Campbell, Jen Chaney, and Lou Katz. Our position was next to Joan Rivers. Oh, gosh. And she looked, when she was approaching her spot for her camera with uh, Melinda, her daughter, uh, she put out a look like, don't screw with me, buddy. Leave me alone. Don't say a word. And mm-hmm. man, the water's part. <laughs> At the movies with Arch Campbell, Jen Cheney, and Lou Katz begins now. Welcome to another one of our At the Movies podcasts. Oh, here we are. No, no formal introductions, but first, since we're just coming off the Oscars, let me have the envelope, please. <laughs> And the Oscar for Best Critic goes to... Wait, wait, we have to split it. Arch Campbell. It was a tie. Arch Campbell. Oh, my goodness. And Jen Cheney. What a shock. (laughs) Jen Cheney, a vulture in WTOP, and Arch Campbell of the past. (laughs) And the present. And the future. Present here, anyway. Exactly. So here we are, Jen and Lou and me, and it's our week after the Oscars, and uh, there was a big upset for Parasite, and Jen, what are your thoughts? I was happy to see it win. You were on that bandwagon earlier. I think you came closer to catching it than anyone I know. That's a nice way of letting me off the hook in that I still predicted 1917, so I was wrong. But I thought there was a chance it could it could win. And, and what's interesting about it is that, as we've talked about, you know, normally you look at what wins the Directors Guild and what wins the Producers Guild, especially mm-hmm. for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that perhaps we're going to have to stop looking at those markers quite as reverently as we as we used to, because, you know, Parasite won the Best Ensemble for SAG. The Actors Division of the Academy is the largest division, and I, I suspect... Maybe that helped it carry the day a little bit. And the fact that people probably ranked it either one or two um, because of the way that they tabulate the votes. If, if a lot of people gave it their their second place ranking, that could have helped it as well. I Yeah, yeah. I think the ranked uh, voting had a lot to do with Parasite winning. And I also think that the nominations were so bland that uh, this was kind of a way of pushing back on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've got our ballot from the last time we were here, and I noticed that, I mean, we both said it would win international feature, but I think you said it would rent, win original screenplay, and I thought that was going to go to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So Right. Uh, I mean, I, I once it won screenplay, I thought uh-huh. this was going to sweep, potentially, and that's what happened. We both thought Sam Mendes was going to win director. But other than that, it was uh, fairly predictable. And and I'm glad that something uh, other than a war movie won Best Picture. Mm -hmm. Gina and I watched it again. I made Gina sit down and watch Parasite. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll I'll say, I've got a movie here. I've got a screener and I want you to watch it. And and she's doing other things and it just drives me crazy. And I said, (laughs) okay. I'm going to show you Parasite, but you have to sit down and pay attention because it's subtitled. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was riveted. Mm-hmm. It's Now, uh, I think you have said uh, that the director will make a, a, a limited series of it for 
Netflix yeah, or somebody. Uh, Bong Joon Ho is is involved in making it into a series, and oh, gosh, I can't oh. remember who it's for right now. I don't think it's yeah. Netflix. Is it HBO? Maybe it's either HBO or FX. I can't remember yeah. what, uh, and I don't know mm-hmm. how they're going to do it differently. I don't either. Um, but yeah, that is the plan. <sighs> well, <laughs> and that's <laughs> that's the way of 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 Hollywood, isn't it? To milk something that's that's uh-huh. done well. But, you know, I respect him as a, a filmmaker enough to think that maybe there's something interesting that they plan to do with it, to, to branch it out from the film. So we'll see. Uh, my guess would be that they get uh, deeper into race in America. Mm-hmm. But beyond class, they get into race and class. Mm-hmm. That's a guess. I don't know. Now, you're the television expert, so what did you think of the Oscar show as a show? Uh, well, I wrote a review of it mm-hmm. um, for Vulture, for anyone who was inclined to read that. But, Good. you know, it wasn't a long broadcast, but what bothered me mm-hmm. is that it didn't need to be as long as it was. Uh-huh. There was no reason for it. <laughs> well said. Uh, the the whole point of not having a host, in my opinion, is one of the mm-hmm. ways to streamline the show. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like they kept adding things they didn't need to add. So you have the beginning with this great performance by Janelle Monet, who's one of the great live performers of her generation. Then bring out Regina King and have her give Brad Pitt an Oscar. Then we had oh. Steve Martin and Chris Rock come out and they were fine, but it's like either do a monologue or do a number. You don't need to do both. I know mm-hmm. Billy Crystal used mm-hmm. to do both, but you don't really need to do both. And then for some reason they would have presenters presenting other presenters yeah. who would then present things. Yeah. I'm like, why are we yeah. doing that? And it just felt like they were trying to still figure out like we don't have a host so we have to have somebody and you don't just have a voiceover or just have you know Lin-Manuel Miranda walk out and say I am here to do introduce this unnecessary movie montage so that Eminem can then come out and (laughs) perform Lose Yourself like I just I just think I don't know why they continue to add unnecessary layers when they don't need to be there I don't think they've found the secret sauce yet I do give them points for being over by 1130 so at least there was that true it's supposed to be done by 11 yeah But uh, the closer they get to 11, the better off they're going to be. Yeah. I, think. I mean, there, there were new producers doing it this year, too. So maybe they're still kind of getting the hang of it. But I think there's new producers every year. Not always. There's not always. Not... No. Um, but the, and, and a, uh, I think Glenn Weiss was directing. He's done it many times before. But yeah, I, I thought I don't know what, how you felt about the opening number, but I thought it kind of started everything off really high energy. And then when Steve Martin and Chris Rock came out, it just felt like beep a little bit like it came down mm. for me. The musical numbers uh, were not designed for my demographic. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> means you don't like Janelle Monae. Uh, How can you not like Janelle Monae? I didn't say I didn't like her. I I just said some of the performances were were not designed for me. Mm-hmm. Some of them lost me, mm-hmm. and and I'll admit Eminem lost me. And they put Eminem out there, and then. <laughs> They, they bleeped half of his performance. Well, that, that was very frustrating. I don't yeah. know if it's my imagination, but I feel like we used to be able to bleep things with a lot more precision. Uh-huh. Where we could just bleep the word as opposed yeah. to just somebody's not talking for like a full 25 <laughs> seconds. And I don't know. I, I said this on Twitter uh, that night. I'm like, you know, the president can apparently say BS in the, in, in uh-huh. the East uh-huh. Room at noon and be broadcast on all the networks, but... We can't hear what Eminem says, even though we've all heard that song 8 million times. Like, I just, come on. They've always had trouble producing a TV show. Mm-hmm. It's always been uh, problematic for them. So I, I wish them well. You know, and I guess the big question is, will the Oscars ever again have the position in society that they had 
30 years ago. No. 40 years the ago. The answer is no. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> They're not. I well, mean, this is the thing. <laughs> they well, keep... we've solved that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the ratings were lower this year. Uh-huh. And, and the fact is, here's what I, I think is the problem, is that they're still trying to make the Oscars be this mass event. And it is. Like, it's still, mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, 23 million people is, is not nothing, especially, you know, in, in this day and age. But it's, it's an, in a way, a niche thing. The people who watch the Oscars really care about it. They want to know who wins. The people who don't might turn it on for a second and turn it off. But trying to put in stuff to entice people to watch, like, just make this for the people who really love it. Mm-hmm. Who are, I actually mm-hmm. want to see who wins. Like, I don't want to wait around forever to see who wins. Right. And, like, the breaking news, what was the breaking news? That Parasite won. You had to wait three and a half hours to find that out. <laughs> it's like it's like writing a news story and the lead is at the end. Like, come on. <laughs> So uh, there, there have been some movies that have opened since then, and I uh, had the uh, great pleasure of sitting next to you during the screening of Birds of Prey, which we're not calling any. No, anymore. not which has a new title. <laughs> now it's Harley Quinn: colon, Birds of Prey. <laughs> And uh, I thought it would be a huge smash. I thoroughly and I enjoyed a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly so. It's uh, uh, Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, who was the Joker's girlfriend. And now they've broken up and she's getting her act together and taking it on the road. <laughs> <laughs> Thoughts? Uh, I mean, I I liked a lot of the action sequences. I liked, you know, this was directed by a woman, written mm-hmm, by a woman. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the director um, grew up in Northern Virginia mm. um, for a lot of her childhood. Oh, I didn't know that. So, you know, there was that moment where they're having the fight sequence and I forget who one of them gives the other one a hair tie, which is not something you normally see in a <laughs> action film. You know, I love those little touches. I just felt like something was missing. And, I, and I've been thinking about what it was. And it to me, it was, there really wasn't an arc. Like, yeah, she broke up with Joker, but she was always an aggressive, violent. Mm-hmm. And so she doesn't really, there's no change in her from beginning to end, necessarily. And I think, you know, they were all kind of banding together to fight Ewan McGregor, who was clearly an awful guy. However, Ewan McGregor was having so much fun that I didn't really hate him that much. As <laughs> oh, much as really? I was supposed to. Really? I thought he made a not, you know, I liked him as a villain because it's kind of against type yeah, for him. Right. I was thinking of the movie uh, Big Fish mm. where he played the younger version of this uh, outrageous teller of tall tales. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and a lot of his other stuff uh, I've liked. Mm-hmm. I like Mary Elizabeth Winstead a oh, lot. Oh, she was great. And Rosie Perez had a wonderful role as a, as a wizened cop who joins the Birds of Prey. Yeah. I mean, I, I that was the other thing is that it wasn't really toward the end of the movie where all of the women actually came together. And uh-huh. I felt like I wanted more of that because they had toward the end like a scene where they were just kind of bantering with each other. And that was really fun. And I was like, oh, I wish we could have gotten to that faster. And when they dispatched the villain, they dispatched him. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the comic book movies, there there's a big fight, and then uh, the hero looks like uh, he or she is going to lose, and then the villain does some more stuff, and then they defeat the villain, but then the villain comes, but you know, mm-hmm. they don't wrap it up, and this... They just blew him apart. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> Sorry, but but I, you know, I thought it made it uh, more fun and uh, zippy. Yeah, yeah, no, it is fun. It it is very violent. Um, I will say, and it felt just violent for the sake of being.
being violent. Yeah. So that was kind of maybe it was the mood I was in when I got there, but I was that was a little off. It was sitting next to me. That did no, it, it wasn't. <laughs> it was. It was not that at all. You know, I, I was mad when I got there. <laughs> <laughs> when you tripped over my foot. <laughs> so I guess. You're mixed on bird of, Birds of Prey, on Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey. What's with that? They well, decided, oh, we didn't make any money because we gave it the wrong title. So let's let's put her name in the title. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what happened. You know, can't, can't you figure that out? Yeah, you should have figured that out a long time ago. You're mixed. I'm kind of mixed to positive. And, yeah. and not great, but uh, good enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I think we both saw Downhill, which opened this week. Yep. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Will Ferrell. A remake. How ironic is this? Mm-hmm. Parasite wins Best Movie of the Year, a foreign <laughs> film, and Downhill remakes the Swedish, was it Swedish? It was Swedish, yes, Force Majeure. Force Majeure, story of a uh, wealthy family on a skiing trip and sitting on a terrace, a planned avalanche suddenly engulfs the entire terrace, and when the snow clears, the mother played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, has has both of her sons clinging to her as if they would all die together. And the husband has uh, run around the corner to safety. <laughs> Grabbed his cell phone, then ran around the corner. <laughs> Loves his cell phone more than his family. And it's about the tension after that. So you were a big fan of the original. I did like the original a lot. And I think... I actually liked this. I think it's gotten some really rough reviews that oh. I that I didn't think were quite warranted. I think people were expecting this to be a lighter version of Force Majeure, and it's not. It's not. It's it's a very... I almost hesitate to call it a comedy. I think they've done it a disservice the way they're marketing it to mm-hmm. make it seem like this is going to be a funny, well, Farrell on skis kind of movie, and that's not what it is. It's not what it is. I think you tend to uh, hold the remake you know, the Americanization against it. Mm-hmm. But uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is such a good actress mm-hmm. that this is this is in her wheelhouse. She, she kind of threaded that needle on Veep. She, uh, and I had the, you know, good fortune to actually watch her work mm-hmm. up yeah, close. I remember. Um, and she has a real just amazing capacity to skate between comedy and do these really intense dramatic moments that she, what she does in this movie, she can go to, to like really emotional places. And I think she's great in this. She is definitely better than Will Ferrell in this. Will Ferrell's more low key kind of part for him. Um, and I think she kind of outacts him. Well, and Will Ferrell is uh, revealed as a uh, selfish coward. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say it's typecasting. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, there's there's an unbalance in the in the role. So I mm-hmm. I thought he was okay. Yeah, I, thought, I mean, he's not know? bad. I just think that she has more emotional range, maybe to to play with than he does. Now I'll give this points for being 82 minutes. <laughs> it just zips along, mm-hmm. and it's over before you know it. And I think at that length, it has more impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I think we're both given a positive to downhill. Yeah, I liked it. I just think a lot of people won't. <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> are going to expect something that it 
that is not what it is. Jen, do you think they were just missed uh, that they were miscast? That they should have had two totally different actors in no, there? No, not at all. I, I don't think that's what it is. I think that the way that the movie has been marketed makes it seem like it's going to be a lighter comedy. And, I, and again, even calling it a comedy feels like a misnomer. I mean, when I think of Will Ferrell and I think of Julia Louis Dreyfus, I'm already thinking comedy. Right. It, it's right. Like, sure. It's like so to me, if, if it's really a, more of a serious, you know, I'm not wasn't familiar with the original. But to me, maybe they were just the wrong people to, to be. I mean, there the there are funny moments in it, but it's not. It's all very situational and very dark and dry humor. You know what I mean? It's not. It's tension filled. Yes. With some uh, relief. You know, I think you you laugh several times out of relief. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and yeah, that's a wonderful technique. And I also think this movie, um, more so maybe than the original, yes, it's about this couple and their relationship, but I really think this movie is about middle age and struggling mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. And they're both individually struggling with that. And it's it's yeah. kind of the root of the problems with their relationship. Yeah, there's nothing funny about middle age. Nope. <laughs> Having just now that it's in my rearview mirror. <laughs> Anything else you've got uh, you want to talk about movie wise? I, uh, you know, I I didn't catch um the other stuff that's coming out this week. I didn't see Sonic or uh the photograph, unfortunately. So uh, what is it? Sonic Hedgehog. Sonic the Hedgehog. I think uh, that's going to be the movie this week. Yeah. I think, and I think it doesn't need a review. I think it's uh, funny and family friendly, and that's what the movies are all about. Mm. Lewis, <laughs> get us out of this, will you? I will. Glad to get you out of it by telling you in just a moment after a very brief break, we'll come back and talk television here on our At The Movies podcast. This is the Cats Podcasting System. So, Jen, what are you watching on television? (laughs) There is a new series that just started on Hulu. It's High Fidelity, and if that sounds very familiar, (laughs) that's because it was a novel, and it was made into a movie back in 2000 with John Cusack. I loved that movie. Yeah. Just loved it. And the novel is one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, And it's now made into a series with Zoe Kravitz in the lead role, playing Rob which in this case is short for Robin, who is a record store owner. They've moved the setting. In the book, it was London. In the movie, it was Chicago. Now it's Brooklyn. Mm. Everything Uh, happens in Brooklyn. It's true. (laughs) It really does. And, you know, she owns a record shop. She's just come out of a long-term relationship. Um, You know, the structure of it is identical to Mm -hmm. the original, where she starts, you know, trying to to her top five exes. She tries to get in touch with them and figure out what's wrong with her and why she can't maintain relationships. And and while also being obsessed with music, she has relationships with her, uh, the people who work for her in the record store. Um, Divine Joy Randolph, who was in... Dolomite is my name and almost stole oh, that movie from oh, Eddie Murphy. Yes. She is in this and and uh she plays uh what was sort of the Jack Black role. Mm. The kind of boisterous wannabe musician. She's terrific. Just oh, good, terrific. Good. I think Zoe Kravitz is terrific in this. It is, like I said, very similar to in certain ways to the um original, down to even some of the dialogue is identical from what was in the book. And is it a limited series or not necessarily. Um it's this is, is one like season of 10 episodes. 10 episodes. Okay. Um, yesterday, I actually talked to Nick Hornby, who wrote the novel, and Zoe mm. Kravitz. Zoe Kravitz wants more seasons. Yeah. It sounds like she even has some thoughts in her head about what would happen, but they haven't gotten a green light yet.
yet. I think they're waiting to see what the response is. So no, it, it's not necessarily a limited series, and I hope they do make more. Just personally, I think it's it's really powerful to see a woman playing that Rob role. And there's a scene in the fifth episode where Zoe Kravitz and this guy that she's kind of sort of seeing, who's played by Jake Lacey, they go to possibly buy this record collection from this woman who's played by Parker Posey, who is basically trying to sell all of her husband's records before he finds out she's done it. <laughs> and she, they know where the husband is. So they, for some reason, Zoe Kravitz's character is like, I, I just, I got to know what this guy is about. If he seems like a jerk, then I'd feel less bad about taking his records. And he starts talking, they get him talking about music and he directs everything he's saying to Jake Lacey's character. <laughs> as if... <laughs> Zoe Kravitz isn't yes. there. And and then he's he starts uh, talking about Wings Over America, the Paul McCartney and Wings uh, live album. Yeah. Like it came out in nineteen eighty four and she's like, Well that, no, actually it was nineteen seventy six and he's like, Oh, do you like Paul McCartney? <laughs> like you're a woman and I don't think you would know. And and, and I'm just I've I've been the woman in that conversation so many times. Uh and, and I I loved that it addressed that, that the fact that they don't have to change mm-hmm, very much mm-hmm. because there are a lot of women who love music as much as um, right. the, the the character in the original High Fidelity. And that was something Zoe Kravitz said, too. She's like, you know, there were not that many moments when we were adapting this where we thought, well, a woman would do this. It was like she was very, I think, adamant about like, actually, I related to that character and I don't think we have to radically change what he was to make him a woman. Very cool. And very cool that they uh, touched on to Parker Posey, who was you oh, know, the her. queen of the Indies 25 years ago. Yeah. And when you talked to the author, did he recognize you as the author of As If? Plug, plug, um, insert plug Nick here. Hornby is a very famous uh, author, and no. <laughs> he would not know that <laughs> well, I wrote a book, nor would he care. <laughs> I, I doubt that. I'm sure he would have cared. I, d- I want to just very quickly tell you that I am watching The Center. Mm-hmm. I got I was looking around a couple of years ago for something to watch, and I watched the first episode, first season of The Center with Bill Pullman. And he's sort of this this uh, confused, sort of a latter-day Columbo mm-hmm. police detective who has things in his background, possibly grew up with a, a manic-depressive or bipolar mother. And he can uh, understand uh, the things that everyone else can't understand. And so uh, he's, his new case is a teacher played by Matt Bomer, is that his name? Yes, it is. Gina was saying, oh, white collar, white collar. (laughs) She liked that guy in white collar. And his friend, Chris Messina, who's always been a a great sort of villainous character, comes to see him, and they've got some weird thing going, and they get in a big car wreck, and Chris Messina dies, and now... Oh, wait, what? Chris Messina dies? Well, but except... There, you know, then for the next 10 episodes, there are flashbacks oh, okay. up there. So he's in the whole thing. Okay, cool. And as Bill <laughs> Pullman uh, investigates. And um, I think it's pretty good. I mm-hmm. like the character. I like the detective. I like uh, him. I need to look up and try to remind myself what is in Bill Pullman's past that makes him so kind of wounded. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, are you watching this at all? I haven't gotten to it. It's I, a USA to de- USA network, right. and you can't. You know, you you got to wait. 
It's it's like the Saturday morning cereals now. Yeah, you have to wait until it, it's broadcast. What a yeah. weird concept. <laughs> I want it all at once. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kind of liking that. I don't think I like... I, I think I like that as much as you like High Fidelity. Okay. Because I like the character. Mm-hmm. But I don't like having to wait on it. But there you are. So that's our television discussion. We're going to play, you know, you this this podcast used to have the trivia question. Right. And uh, the trivia question has morphed into Stump, Stump Jen. Jen. <laughs> and this is what I get for saying, you know, should we do a trivia question? Uh, and then uh, the response was, yeah, let's do one to make you look dumb. Okay. No, no, <laughs> never. <laughs> this is... This is not out of high fidelity. We're not having the conversation with just the men. This is this is aimed at you because you're the smartest one in the room. Well, we'll you see about see? that. So the, the trivia question this week is who hosted the Oscars the most times? Ooh. And how many times? Oh, it's a two-parter. And actually... There are three performers who hosted the Oscars multiple times, so you get extra credit. Oh, there's only three who's done it multiple times? Multiple times. You know, like a lot of times. Yeah. There's three who come up, so you get extra credit. So just think about that. Oh, I have to think. Okay. Just think about that. Okay. (laughs) Who hosted the Oscars the most times, and how many times did they... Oh, we we will take a break, and we're going to come back and find out exactly the answer. But first, one of the features you'll hear on Hound Radio at houndradio.com. Hound Radio is busy sniffing around getting you helpful residential real estate tips like this. Have you considered selling your house as is? It's important to understand that selling as is has different meanings to different people. What it really means is that a house is simply being sold in its current state and the seller will not make any repairs or invest any money into it. Many sellers see this as a more convenient transaction, especially when faced with time constraints or financial or emotional hardships, even if the house is in good shape and well-maintained. To a buyer, though, it's a warning sign that means that they will purchase the property with all of its flaws and issues, and any request for repairs will be denied. And then there are the investors that see this as an opportunity for a great deal. Some reports show that selling as is can result in a sales price of up to 37% lower than a regular sale. Some situations definitely justify selling as is, but a professional agent can walk you through your specific situation and find various options and ways to maximize the net price for your property. For Hound Radio, I'm Karen Parnes. At the Movies with Arch Campbell, Jen Cheney, and Lou Katz comes to you from the secret underground bunker studios of the Katz Podcasting System. So, uh, Valentine's Day is past, and uh, you have some thoughts on some Valentine weekend best bets. Yeah, I thought it would be fun to pick some romantic movies for people to watch, because even though Valentine's Day is over, these are still great movies to revisit. I wonder if we picked the same. Uh, ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so my first one is one of my favorite movies ever that I never get tired of watching, uh-huh. which is Moonstruck. Oh, what a great movie. Uh, God, I love that. It's movie. a terrific movie. I remember when I first saw it, I didn't want to go. Uh-huh. Um, my friend w- kind of talked me into it because I was like, this seems like it's a movie for old people. I was in high school at the time. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I was so glad that he convinced me to go because it's, I just, I never get tired of watching it. I love living in that world. I love, I want to eat at the Grand Ticino. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's a wonderful movie. The next one I was going to recommend because it's, I think, 25 this year is Before Sunrise. Oh. The first movie in that right. that trilogy with yeah. um, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, directed by Richard Linklater. That did one, you like the ones that he did that followed that I, up? I did. I like the whole trilogy, but... The first movie is is still my favorite because it's the most hopeful. It's mm. it's before everything starts to mm. <laughs> people get older and things get a little more um, complicated. Um, but it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. It's just like one long, really one long conversation between two people getting to know each other. But they are just wonderful in it. And then because we were talking about Will Ferrell, I wanted to recommend a Will Ferrell movie that I really like that I feel like people don't talk about very much anymore, which is Stranger Than Fiction. When he it's another low key role for him, but mm-hmm. he's great in it. He's this uh, I think he's an accountant in the movie, kind of living a boring life. And all of a sudden he starts to hear narration as if he's like the star of his <gasps> Like in his own novel, um, he's in it. Emma Thompson's in it. Maggie Gyllenhaal plays his love interest. She's a baker. It's such a charming, clever movie. If you've never seen it, go back and check it out. Well, I immediately thought of when Harry met Sally. Oh well, that's you that's know the best. That that is, and you know, romantic movies, romantic comedies don't seem to have the attraction that they used to have. I think that was true. And now what I think is happening is that they're all on Netflix. Like Netflix is Uh, putting all their energy or not all their energy, but a lot of energy into that. And we're not seeing them as much like theatrically, mm -hmm, but we are mm -hmm. seeing them in other places. When I watched Little Women Mm -hmm. with Greta Gerwig, I got uh, some echoes of when Harry met Sally, especially toward the end as uh, as the uh, as the lovers finally get together Mm -hmm. as uh, as uh, Joe finds her uh, husband. It just it reminded me of of Harry and Sally Mm. and uh, uh, Nora Ephraim. Anyway, I always uh, had a soft spot for. Yeah, that's one of the tightest, best romantic comedy screenplays that's ever been written. All of her. uh, I used to. she put together several books of essays that I loved from the days when she was writing for Esquire and uh, for New York Magazine. Mm-hmm. So I'm a great Nora Ephron fan. And then I want to go really old school and throw out Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, but I, I'm a you sucker. Need to be sorry. I'm a sucker for that movie. I bet I've seen it 25 times now. Mm-hmm. When uh, Casablanca, did they colorize that movie? Oh yeah, to you know they, they've done everything to it over the years. See it in black and white. Though. Yeah, the, the, the original. And um, that's it. So oh, just those two. <laughs> just two. Come on, Art, you gotta have more. Uh, just talking about the weekend. <laughs> I want to tell people to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is it's a romance between Quentin Tarantino and uh, television and movies the way they used to be. I thought so. you were going to say it's a romance between Quentin Tarantino and Margot Robbie's feet, which is also an accurate description. <laughs> Jen is rolling her eye. I'm getting an eye roll. No, I'm there. not. I literally am not moving my eyeballs at all. <laughs> all right. I think it's time. We do our Stump Gen trivia question now here on our At The Movies podcast. And if you missed it a little earlier in the podcast, Arch has got the question again now. Who hosted the Oscars the most times and how many? 
I bet you can guess. Well, I you mentioned You've that there's me. three performers yeah, yeah. who've done it, and I believe it's Bob Hope, yes, Johnny Carson, and Billy Crystal. Well, Billy Crystal did it more times than Johnny Carson. This surprised me. Carson did it five times. Okay. Crystal did it nine, and Bob Hope did it 19. 19? 19. Well, some of those times he was co-hosting, I yeah, believe. Yeah, yeah. This is true, but but he's got 19 notches. And he goes back to the days when it was just a dinner. Right, right. You know, some of the other uh, hosts include Fred Astaire, Carol Burnett, Frank Capra, hmm. Georgie Jessel, <laughs> Lionel Barrymore, and Jack Benny. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> It's going way back, Arch. Yeah, well. Firing up the way back machine. Just look it up. It's on the internet. <laughs> Who do you think was the best host? I think the Oscars need somebody like Johnny Carson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Billy Crystal was so good that I don't think ever again they'll be able to replicate somebody like him. Well, when he came back, he wasn't. It didn't no, gel quite the no, same way. No. So they need a Johnny Carson uh, figure who is uh, bigger than the industry. Mm-hmm. You know, Carson uh, was on NBC and uh, he was hosting them on ABC. So he was bigger than than the networks. Right. And the only person I can think of who might uh, fit that bill is Colbert. Mm. You don't. I don't. I don't know. I don't know that. I, I feel like there isn't that kind of a person no. anymore. I don't know if he was my favorite, but I'll just, I, I say this often. I liked the Letterman Oscars. Okay? Uh, I yes, liked them. Yes. He, he had no business being there, and that was what was great about it. Yes. <laughs> there was a, a big article in Variety by Letterman talking about yes, that. Yes, I read that. And everyone was, you know, and really, if you read the article, it was it was great. It was a great Oscars. And for some reason, he internalized it no, as everybody, being a No, disaster. that's not true. It's not all, he was... It was a disaster. Like, it was characterized as a disaster. I didn't think it was a disaster, but it was mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. characterized that way. I think the people who watched it loved it. Well, I went back and I watched the monologue and I was like, you know, people, this isn't as bad as he no, thinks no, it was. But no. the Uma Oprah thing just, uh, it didn't work and he know. just kept doing it. <laughs> See, guys, if we were running video here, then you'd know about the eye thing. Anyway, let's swing over and get ready for our guest movie critic of the week. Arch, who we have? My dear friend Russell Williams now teaches at American University. For many years, he uh, worked the streets of D.C. shooting local and network news for the various networks. Then he skipped to Hollywood, did sound on Glory and sound on Dances with Wolves, and now is a two-time Oscar winner. And let's say hello to Russell Williams. All right. Hello, everyone. I was in your class the other day at American University, and I just got to say your students are lucky to have you. I appreciate that. We we have a lot of fun, and all of them are really aiming towards some aspect of the entertainment industry, so it's it's a captive audience. So Jen and I are very interested in your opinion of the Academy these days and the move to uh, diversify the voting pool, and uh, where are you on that? Well... Jen and Arch, it's uh, it's a long road. Um, as I, I said in the class, when the Academy uh, was born in 1929, you know, we were in a different United States of America than we are now. And so pretty much the workforce that you saw behind the camera and in front of the camera was basically white males. And then, of course, we had some really nice female leads on camera as well. 
So as we bring the industry forward, uh, the audience got more diverse, behind the camera got more diverse, the academies, plural, this would include music and television as well, part of their job is to keep people out. Now, they don't want to advertise themselves that way, but, you know, you have to have a certain body of work, a certain amount of accomplishment before you can become a member of any of these academies. And even then, it doesn't mean that you win their ultimate award. Do you always become a member as soon as you win an Oscar? Is that uh, part of the uh, key to being asked to join? Arch, uh, the Academy loves its rules, and it depends on which branch you are actually uh, anointed in. So, example, if you are an actor and you go out on your first feature film and you get a nomination, usually that's enough right there to get invited into the acting branch. But when I had won my Oscar for Glory, um, and I assumed I'd be invited, you know, within that calendar year, and one of the people said, well, maybe. And I said, well, maybe. They said, yeah, well, because we also look at your body of work. So in sound, and to this day, you still need 10 years of experience, even if you have the statuette in your hand. Mm. So each of the 17 branches has a different set of rules. There was a lot of pushback over the, particularly the best picture nominations as being um, a, a stack of bland white bread. <laughs> Once you're, with the exception of Parasite. And so is that what led to Parasite, just to push back against the other uh, nominations? Well, I, I'll put it this way. I, I was really high on 1917. Uh, I, don't, I don't see anything bland about that movie. I mean, I don't think we've had enough modern films that actually look at World War One and what a absolute horrific uh, time of history that was. And I, I thought that Sam Mendez and his cast and crew did an excellent job, like putting us into the, the you know the terror of battle. It's not, it's not Saving Private Ryan, but it, it is the terror of battle because you really have nobody you can point to and say, hey, I need some help over here. You, for the most part, they're, they're they're alone. Some of the other movies, I was kind of like, eh, you know, not really best picture material, but had strong cast and you know a safe bet. I think the reason Parasite did eventually uh, raise, uh, rise to the top of that heat, one, the Screen Actors Guild anointed it with their Best Ensemble Award, which that is basically akin to Best Picture. And because the actors have the largest block of votes in the entire Motion Picture Academy, I think the acting branch would basically uh, be more people numerically than the next three most populated branches combined. So that was my first hint that Parasite was going to uh, to rule the day. And it may have been a protest vote, but it was actually a really good film. I, I had, you know, I, I read your reviews after I've seen the movie, you know, because I want to go in with a blank slate mm-hmm. and then see whether your take and my take and, and, and the other great people we had on the stage, Ann Hornaday, Tim and, and Shireen, you know, they, uh, you know, reviewed a movie. I'd like to see where they were. Uh, when it t- time comes to vote, did it move me? Was it predictable? Was it, you know, I mean, was it too long? Like we talked about two of those movies that we saw at Middleburg. <laughs> but uh, I-, I really do believe that, that Parasite sent a-, a clear signal that international movies 
really have been significant storytelling machines for decades. So for our academy to finally recognize one, not only in the international category, but as best picture, I think sends a strong signal. But there's still a lot of work to be done because there were a lot of other projects this year that could have been recognized that weren't. Yeah, so so, uh, give us a couple of titles uh, that you would have liked to have seen in the mix. Okay, so uh, even even at Middleburg, I was really impressed with Just Mercy, mm-hmm. and so I, I thought that would have gotten in there. I, I was really impressed with a movie that wasn't really something that the Academy talked about, but uh, Naomi Harris in Black and Blue. Mm-hmm. I thought the performances in this movie, Waves, were, were really strong, even though the movie's Structurally, the movie got a little long, but the first part of that movie, uh, Kelvin Harrison should have had a nomination without any real uh, question. Did you see Queen and Slim? I did see Queen and Slim, and, and, I, and I, I liked most of what happened in the film in the sense that they really did take time to kind of develop the, the black love story in there. And, of course, they're on the run, so it's somewhat Bonnie and Clyde and, and, and somewhat other buddy chase films. But I also thought that some of the portrayal of the police scenes was, was a little stereotypical. And there was one officer that I had assumed would come out somewhere in the press and say, hey, you know, these people had me right where they wanted me and they didn't kill me. So it, there's got to be more to the story than the way the media is portraying it. But um, I, whether that was an Academy Award nominee, not sure. You know, but it, it was it was a, it was it was fun. And, and see, that's always the, the you know, the, where the line has to be drawn. It, it could be a good move. It could have been entertaining. So do you have hope for uh, next year? Arch, if I don't have hope, I won't get out of bed. I know that the Academy is up against uh, so many different pressures. Part of the pressure that, 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 that as a voting member, and I'm not a decider or a decision maker, is because our whole process is opaque, you always assume something's fishy going on, unlike, say, for instance, the Baseball Hall of Fame or something like that. We know, you know, how many home runs you hit, how many bases you stole, how many strikeouts you earned over your career, and then when they vote you into the Hall of Fame or not, they don't say who didn't vote for you, but they say, well, you got a unanimous, so there were five, four, and 20 against or whatever, but we never even get that information. Well, Russ, when we have our friends on the podcast, we always ask them to be a guest critic and just tell us about a movie you've seen lately that you particularly like and recommend to our many podcast listeners. Well, I would say, because lately I've been basically inundated with going through all of the things that were nominated this year, so... I would say I haven't. I don't think I've seen anything that's been released in 2020. Um, so I would say if you haven't seen Parasite, definitely see Parasite. If you haven't seen 1917, and if it's still on the screen, see that. Um, the international films that were up this year, American Factory was good, even though I thought that. Um, well, not that was that was actually in the best documentary yeah. category, but uh, the international films that were up. Uh, all five of them are strong, if, if you can find them anywhere. But I, I go to you on that, you and Jen and Lou. So what have you seen so far this year that I should be uh, queuing up for at my local Regal? I'm discerning that you really are a fan of 1917. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I, it was. It, it, I, I saw it first in IMAX, then I saw it again at the MPAA with uh, Sam Mendes and, and the two leads. And then, of course, I had to watch it again uh, once it was nominated. So I was not – but, again, if, 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 if Parasite hadn't won, I would have been disappointed if 1917 had not uh, won Best Picture. I didn't think Irishman had a chance, Marriage Story, uh, forget about it. I, I, you know, those were, to me, those are the top two uh, in terms of the Best Picture uh, group that we had this year. Well, Russ, it's always uh, enlightening to uh, hear from you, and uh, and I have explained that you never reveal who you voted for. Yes, yeah, against the rules. I mean, if, if, if... I think I got an idea, <laughs> but, <laughs> but thank you for <laughs> for spending some time with us, with me and Jen Cheney and Lou Katz. Absolutely. Thanks for the invite. And no, I'll never tell, uh, even if uh, on my deathbed, (laughs) (laughs) which I hope is decades away. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) All right, brother. (laughs) So Lou, we're going to end today with, uh, some music from the movies. Yeah. We're doing the 007 thing. The new one? Yeah. The no time to die. Now you're a big fan of Billie Eilish. Right. Yeah, I like Billie Eilish. And she picked up how many Grammys? Um, I don't them, remember what she? the total was, but she won like every major category. Talking about Billie, and by the way, I think she's the youngest ever to be mm-hmm. asked to record a theme to the James Bond movie. How many? What movie number is this in the Bond series? Oh this is my like God! Seventy, eighty, seventy-five, <laughs> something like 30, that. Thirty, thirty. You know, No Time to Die uh, was going to be the theme of the David Letterman Oscar. <laughs> 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 Anyway, here is Billy with No Time to Die. So shall we wish everybody a good week, and we'll be back next week? Right. Sounds good. I should have known I'd leave alone Just goes to show That the blood you bleed is just the blood you own We were a pair But I saw you there Too much to bear You were my life, but life is far away from fair Was I stupid to love you? Was I reckless to help? Was it obvious to everybody else That I've fallen for a lie? You
This is the CATS Podcasting System.